Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Isaiah 43. And I want us to read the first 21 verses. Isaiah 43, verse 1 through 21. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight. Since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together in order that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them be present, let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They've been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. Here you have a passage of Scripture that has been the inspiration for some of the great hymns of the faith. And it says something very important for us to bear in mind. We, as God's people, have been saved by Him to be His witnesses in the earth. To be His witnesses, not simply with, uh, to, to, to the world on how we feel or how believing the Bible makes us feel, or our own experiences and emotional state, but we've been called upon by God to witness to the world the glory and the majesty of the one true and living God and call the world to an account before Him and to tell the world that there's salvation in Him and no other. Now, the second thing this passage tells us, that if you're a faithful witness to Jehovah, then, or you might say, if you're a faithful Jehovah witness, <laughs> then you will go through the water and the flood and the fires. My daughter pointed out to me something I hadn't particularly emphasized before in verse 2. I said, Ann, where's the verse that says, if you pass through the waters, I'll be with you? She said, I don't know, but I'll tell you where the verse is that says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when, that if you're a faithful witness to the living God, you will suffer persecution, you will be slandered, you will be ridiculed, you will have to go through the waters and the floods and the fire, but believe in the God whose witness you are and His sovereignty over all of life. But even though you have to go through deep waters, God will be with you. Even though you have to go through the floods of persecution, they'll not overflow you and drown you. Even though you have to walk through the fire, you'll not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you, because the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, is always with you. And that's one of the two reasons why a faithful witness can endure anything for the sake of the witness. One, because he knows in whatever happens, God is with him. And number two, because he knows that victory belongs to the Lord, and that the people whom God formed for himself will declare his praise that the beasts of the earth will glorify him, that he will give waters to the wilderness and rivers to the dry land, and that his great kingdom will triumph over all kingdoms. Now tonight we're going to continue to look at a people who really believe these things. They went through the fire. They went through the flood. And yet because they were confident that God was with them, they were willing to endure anything for his namesake and so we go back to the old Scottish Covenanters, the Scottish Presbyterians of the 17th century. Now remember, we are dealing with just 28 years. But what hellish years those were. The time period in mine is 1660 to 1688. Prior to 1660, there was a Puritan nation, a Reformed powerful reformed influence in England. But with the death of Oliver Cromwell, the tyrants come back to the throne. The Stuarts are restored to the monarchy in 1660. And in fulfillment of all of uh, Cromwell's predictions, they intensify their persecution of the reformed faith and reformed church and reformed preachers and reformed believers with an intensity never seen before or since in the history of the world. And nobody suffered more greatly at the hands of the tyrants than the Scottish Presbyterians. You remember that last week we said that 
Uh, the Presbyterian preachers were banned from their pulpits and their salaries and their homes. They wandered homelessly in uh, Scotland. And also Presbyterians were banned from churches from having their worship services. If they didn't go to the legal and official Anglican church, they were fined and taxed heavily. If they had their own meetings out in the fields and their worship services, they were persecuted, arrested, tortured, and killed. These were terrible days. But there were two periods during these 28 years called by the Scottish people the Blinks, B-L-I-N-K-S, the Blinks. And those two period of times were times resulting from indulgences that Charles II and later James II had passed, giving some ostensible relief to the Presbyterians. For one political reason or another, which we'll not go into, at, on two different occasions, the Stuart kings said, we're not going to persecute the Presbyterians in Scotland anymore. You can come back to your churches. The preachers can have their jobs back. They can move back in their manses. And all the Presbyterians can come back to their churches, and we won't consider you outlaws anymore. If you preach what we tell you. If you recognize that the king is the head of the church. If you allow us to censor your messages. Well, on the surface, this looked like real relief and a real attempt on the powers, a part of the powers that be, to stop the persecution. But anybody with wisdom knew what it was really in fact. It was an attempt to divide the Presbyterians. Divide and conquer. It's always been a, a method of the enemy. Divide and conquer and intense the persecution. So how did they do this? Well, there were a few, about 40, preachers that indulged. That means signed the, uh, agreed to go back home uh, and put themselves and their preaching under the control and censorship of the state. They were hungry. We've got to sympathize for them and, with them in some ways. They were hungry. Their families were hungry. They were tired of being criminals and outlaws. They went back to their churches, preached, and the people went back to, their, to paying them their salaries and to coming back to their churches. And when they did that, they made it worse for those people of conscience who could not indulge. We see the blinks for what they are. We see in its attempt to get us to surrender the crown rights of Jesus Christ to the tyranny of the Stuarts over the Christian church. It's the old Erastianism. We've been fighting for years, they said in effect. Remember, Erastus was the man who believed the church was just a department of state that the church was under the authority of the state. And, and the wiser, more courageous, consistent covenanter saw the indulgences for what they were and says, and most of them said, we cannot indulge. We will not go back and surrender the prerogatives of Christ to the prerogatives of the Stuarts. As one person said, the covenanters were too jealous for their master's honor to reap comforts for themselves at his expense. So what happened then? Well, when these Presbyterians, the ones that did, complied, went back to their churches, that gave the king even greater grounds to persecute the ones that didn't go back. The doors open. 
The law-abiding citizens, Presbyterians, are back where they should be. The law-abiding preachers are in the pulpit. The law-abiding Presbyterians are in the pew. These people that refuse to cooperate, that's still preaching this Presbyterianism out in the fields and the mountains, they must be subversives. They must be outlaws. They must be rebels. And so they intensify the persecution. So what was the cost for these 40 preachers to get their salaries back and have the comfort of their manses? The cost for those 40 preachers indulging was blood of the faithful Presbyterians who would not surrender the crown rights of Jesus Christ to tyranny. Life was becoming treacherous for Scottish Presbyterians. And understand that the enemy still is shrewd. He still knows how to divide and conquer Christians. He knows how to turn used Christians against Christians. Expect the time to continue for the enemy of the gospel, whether it's the state or the culture or the church, to work out compromises that on their surface seem good and wholesome and many Christians will go along in order to get some relief from the battlefield that we've had to fight in now for these decades. And when the state offers compromises to Christians and says, you can go along on these things, you don't have to compromise a thing except here and there, just little things, just here and there, then expect those who have conscience and who see through it all and who will not compromise to expect more persecution. I'm going to give you some examples. Chalcedon Presbyterian Church and all of her ministries is under the authority of Christ, not the authority of the state. As has been our history in this country, there's been this institutional separation of church and state, and therefore the state has had no authority to tax the church. The state has authority to tax individuals, and all of us should pay taxes, if for no other reason to keep the government off your back. But the state has no authority to tax churches. And every year in our ministries, we have to make the decision as to whether or not we're going to compromise just a little and sign the forms and the papers of the state with reference to how we pay the people on our staff. The law says, that various institutions have to do this, this, this. Fill out this form, that form, this form, that form. Or you suffer the consequences. So, because we didn't want to go off half-cocked and we, didn't want, we wanted to do the right thing and didn't want to wave a red flag in front of wild bulls, we sought the counsel of other Christian schools and pres uh, sponsored by Presbyterian churches as well as by Baptist churches. And we found that they all had indulged. And their advice was, fill out the forms. Sign the dotted lines. You want to continue to exist, don't you? Compromise just to here and there a little. And so Chalcedon in the state of Georgia almost stands alone as the one church and school that will not indulge and will not fill out the forms of the state and will not sign the dotted lines, not because we want to wave flags, I mean none of us want to go to jail, but because of our jealousy not to compromise the crown rights of King Jesus. 
understand what it means. It may, the cost may be. It'd be a lot easier to sign the line and forget it and everybody be happy like everybody else has signed. But the price for not signing is the possibility of losing the tax-exempt status of this church and some of its officers may be going to jail. So you see, you see things haven't changed much in the way the enemy tries to divide and conquer. But these covenanters of the 16th century stood firm regardless of the cost. Their life was treacherous and they were Presbyterians. The ministers were viewed as outlaws. Anyone who attended Presbyterian worship services in the fields or mountains, which they called the field meetings or the conventicles, were considered outlaws. Families were, were brutally treated. And so things had gotten so bad that finally when the Presbyterian men came to the Presbyterian worship services, they came armed. Now, when you arm yourself against the state, things become explosive. And that was the situation. I want to read to you one incident, one incident in Thomas, uh, in uh, McCry's book, The Story of the Scottish Church, about one of the very first Presbyterian worship services where the men all came armed in order to defend the families from the soldiers brutal brutalizing them. Now, these field meetings, these Presbyterian worship services, had everything from a handful of people to thousands of people coming to them. So we're not talking about just a little thing. On this one particular day in June the 18th, 1670, an immense congregation of Presbyterians had assembled out in the fields. While the minister was preaching the Reformed faith, one of the king's lieutenants came up on horseback and start galloping around the congregation seeing who was there, obviously to report back, get the troops and arrest some of the leading men there. When the godly men who were attending this worship service saw what was happening and that he was about to ride off to bring back some troops to arrest the men in this worship service, one Presbyterian gentleman stood up and told him very civilly but boldly to don't gallop your horse around anymore till this worship service is over. You can imagine the response of the king's soldier with such a, a, a blatant audacity. So the officer begins to bluster and to rebuke him right in the middle of the worship service. When another one of the Presbyterian, minister, uh, Presbyterian gentlemen drew his pistol and told him, unless you be quiet in this worship service, I will shoot you on the spot. So the officer found himself obliged to sit peacefully on his horse <laughs> until the worship service was ended when he was set at liberty to go off. Now you can imagine how he exaggerated his story and you can imagine how it hit the newspapers the next day. As a result, the powers that be all were in a panic and they started passing the most severe edicts against all Presbyterian worship services out in the field. From here on out, all field services were treasonable. And if you went to a Presbyterian worship service, it was a capital crime. And if you were caught preaching as a preacher in a Presbyterian worship service in the field, you were a capital criminal. 
and you would be executed. Well, what do you think these bloodthirsty, this bloodthirsty legislation repressing the field meetings did to the field meetings? Today, it would lower their attendance probably. In the 16th century, it vastly increased their attendance and their number. The more severely they persecuted the worship services in the field, the more worship services there were, and the more Presbyterians they were that attended these worship services. You remember the rising at Pentland Hills when the few hundred tired, hungry, starving Covenanters faced a well-fed, well-armed, well-disciplined army of the king and were, and were soundly defeated? And then they proceeded after Pentland Hills to persecute the populace. Even if they were suspicious of you being there, they'd kill you. Well, as a result of the severe treatment of the Presbyterians resulting from Pentland Hills, there was hardly any Episcopalians left alive in Scotland. People were converted. They were converting to the Reformed faith. They were converting to Presbyterianism by the droves, even though to be a Presbyterian was a capital crime. You think that'd cut down on conversions, wouldn't you? But it increased conversions, just like in the early church. And so the Presbyterians, even though it was against the law, left the Anglican churches and followed the preachers into the mountains and hills and fields where they heard the Word of God preached. There was one field meeting that was held out in the woods within sight of the palace of Archbishop Sharp. Now, remember, we talked about Archbishop Sharp, that fiend from hell, that apostate Presbyterian who signed the covenant and then later became one of the most bloodthirsty, treacherous persecutors of Scottish covenanters, Archbishop Sharp. One, these Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterians weren't cowards. They had their worship service, massive worship service, right in sight of the home of Archbishop Sharp. Here's a description of that worship service by those who were there. The effect of these services were, were, was very remarkable. The ministers were visibly countenanced in their labors and instances are on record of the most abandoned characters and even the troops themselves who'd come to disturb the meetings having been struck, suddenly struck with conviction and brought to repentance and conversion. So when the king's soldiers would come and outlaws would come to harass the people, they'd hear the preaching of these Presbyterians and be converted on the spot and then join the ranks of the capital criminals. Some of the most moving stories in the history of the church are the, the uh, communion services of the Presbyterians in these field meetings. I want to read to you, uh, and this is several paragraphs, I want to read to you a description of a Covenanter uh, communion service in the fields where thousands attended by one of the field preachers named, uh, named uh, John Blackadder. And he was there and he saw all this. Now, just use your imagination for a minute. I mean, we have nice, calm, comfortable communion services. Well, now, here was a communion service attended by thousands of covenanters. They prepared the elements of bread and wine. A Mr. Welch and Mr. Riddle, two preachers, had reached the place on Saturday. When Mr. Blackadder arrived, he found a great assembly. People from all over were there. 
There was a great alarm that had spread through this massive audience coming to hear the preached word and taking the Lord's Supper. It was rumored that one of the king's nobles, as evil as any in the country, had intended to march on this gathering of Presbyterians with his army and he threatened at this Presbyterian meeting, he threatened, quote, to make their horses drink the communion wine and trample the sacred elements underfoot. So most of the men of means and influence who were there came equipped to deal with that should that situation arise. And so these godly Presbyterians had around this worship service some 200 armed men on horses. They came to church on their horses and armed to defend the Presbyterians taking communion. They stationed themselves around, this congrega around the congregation to protect them so that no one would disturb the worship service. Every means was taken to compose the multitude from needless harm. Now here's the eyewitness account. We entered on the administration of the holy ordinance, committing it and ourselves to the protection of the Lord of hosts, in whose name we were met together. Our trust was in the arm of Jehovah, which was better than the weapons of war or the strength of hills. The place where we convened was every way commodious and seemed to have been formed for that purpose. It was a green and pleasant valley. There was a solemnity in the place befitting the occasion and elevating the whole soul to a pure and holy disposition. The communion tables, now bear in mind the Scottish Covenanters believe that the only way to take one of the, that the best way to take communion was sitting around tables like they did in, like Jesus did. You literally sit around tables and not in chairs. Uh, like we do. The communion tables were spread on the green by the water, and around them the people had arranged themselves in decent order. But the far greater multitude sat on the side of the hill, which was crowded from top to bottom, full as pleasant a sight as ever was seen of that sort. Each day at the congregations dismissing, the ministers with their guards, and as many as the people as could, retired to their quarters in three several country towns after the services. Now, the sacrament lasted, services lasted several days. In the evening, they'd go stay with friends in various little villages. The horsemen, that is, the godly Presbyterians on horse, armed, drew up in a body till the people left the place. They'd march them home and back. Wouldn't that be great? Have to go to church with an army getting you there safely and getting you home. And then <clears throat> marched in goodly array behind at a little distance until all were safely lodged in their houses. In the morning, when the people returned to the meeting place, the horsemen accompanied them. All the three parties met a mile from the spot and marched in a full body to the consecrated ground where the worship service was to take place. The congregation being all fairly settled in their places, the guardsmen took their several stations. These volunteers seemed to have been the gift of providence, and they secured the peace and quiet of the audience. For from Saturday morning... When the work began until Monday afternoon, we suffered not the least affront or molestation from enemies. At first there was some apprehension, but the people sat undisturbed, and the hole was closed in an orderly way as it had been in the time of Scotland's brightest noon. 
you'd have thought there was nothing wrong. And truly the spectacle of so many grave, composed, and devout faces must have struck the adversaries with awe and been more formidable than any outward ability of fierce looks and warlike array. We desired not the countenance of earthly kings. There was a spiritual and divine majesty shining on the work and sensible evidence that the great master of assemblies was present in the midst. It was indeed the doing of the Lord who covered us a table in the wilderness in presence of our foes and reared a pillar of glory between us and the enemy like the fiery cloud of old that separated between the camp of Israel and the Egyptians, encouraging the one, but dark and terrible to the other. Though our vows were not offered within the courts of God's house, they wanted, they lacked not sincerity of heart, which is better than the reverence of sanctuaries. Amidst the lonely mountains, we remembered the words of our Lord that true worship was not peculiar to Jerusalem or Samaria, that the beauty of holiness consisted not in consecrated buildings or material temples. Few days, few such days were seen in the desolate church of Scotland, and few will ever witness the like. There was a rich pouring out of the Holy Spirit shed abroad in many hearts. Their souls, filled with heavenly transport, seemed to breathe in a diviner element and to burn upwards as with the fire of a pure and holy devotion. The ministers were visibly assisted to speak home to the conscience of the hearers. It seemed as if God had touched their lips with a live coal from off his altar. For they who witnessed declared they carried more like ambassadors from the court of heaven than men cast in earthly mold. The tables were served by some gentlemen and persons of the gravest deportment. None were administered, admitted without tokens. You know, as an old Scottish practice that nobody could take the Lord's Supper until they'd been interviewed and examined by the elders to make sure they'd been living right and proof that you'd been examined and passed the inquiry of the elders where you were given a communion token and you couldn't come to that worship service unless you had a communion token. None were admitted without tokens as usual, which were distributed on the Saturday. But on, and you see, they were still concerned with church. These were capital criminals. They were fighting for their lives, and yet they were concerned with the purity of the church. Which were distributed on the Saturday, but only to such as were known to some of the ministers or persons of trust to be free of public scandals. All the regular forms were gone, gone through. The communicants entered at one end and left at the other, a way being kept clear to take their seats again on the hillside. Now notice all the preaching that went on. I mean, the, the longer you sit there, the more risk you run of being attacked by the king's soldiers, right? So you'd sort of expect a short, quick, swift worship service, wouldn't you? If you would, you don't know the Covenanters. Mr. Welch, Knox's grandson, preached the sermon and served the first two tables. The other four ministers, Mr. Blackadder, Mr. Dixon, Mr. Riddle, and Mr. Ray exhorted the rest in their turn. So he got five preachers preaching sermons. The table service was closed by Mr. Welch with a solemn thanksgiving, and solemn it was and sweet and edifying to see the gravity and composure of all present as well as of all parts of the worship service. The communion was peaceably com concluded, all the people heartily offering up their gratitude. It was pleasant as the night fell to hear their melody swelling in full unison along the hill, the whole congregation joining with one accord and praising God with the voice of psalms. 
There were two long tables, one short across the head with seats on each side. About a hundred sat at every table. There were sixteen tables in all, so that all about two thousand two hundred communicated took the Lord's Supper that day. So there's a covenanter's communion. The field preachers were the special objects of the government's hate and the government's vengeance. I wish we had time to talk about several of these men. I just want to tell you the story of one. These were all brave and courageous men and characters, too. Of course, I figure you're going to have to be a character if you're going to be a covenanter preacher in those days. One man's name was John, was, uh, I keep forgetting, John, John Welch. John Welch was the grandson of uh, John Knox. Here's a couple stories from John Welch that I think you'll find very interesting and encouraging. John Welch was such a great preacher, Presbyterian Reformed preacher of the gospel, that he had a price of 500 pounds on his head. John, can you see the signs now? John Welch wanted 500 pounds. And uh, that was when 500 pounds was a lot of money. And he, he was a capital criminal. Uh, he was preaching illegally the wrong message. Well, he'd go from one congregation to another and preach. They'd send bloodhounds after him. They'd send soldiers after him. They'd get informants after him. They did everything they could to arrest John Welch. But he escaped in the mountains of Scotland preaching thousands and thousands of times for 20 years in that condition. His biographer said, I have known Mr. Welch to ride three days and two nights without sleep and preach upon a mountain at midnight on one of the nights. One time when the Tweed River was strongly frozen. Now, remember, he, he escaped them for 20 years. They were trying to catch him. When the Tweed River was frozen, he preached, stood in the middle of the river and preached so that he might offend both England and Scotland. <laughs> and so that both kingdoms would have to argue as to who would be responsible to punish him for his crime. We catch glimpses of Welch with a bodyguard of 12 men dressed in scarlet who watched over him and protected him as he traveled. But I love this story about him. One time when he was being chased relentlessly, he was worn out and weary. He knew that Scottish people would be hospitable so he came to this house not knowing who lived in this house. I remember there were informants everywhere to get some food and some rest. So he knocked on the door of this landlord whom he discovered was a man that was bitterly opposed to field preachers and who particularly hated John Welch. Now there wasn't any photographs of John Welch so he didn't know that John Welch was standing at his door. But he recognized the man as somebody who particularly was after his hide. This man had never seen John Welch himself, however. So, not knowing who he was, in good Scottish hospitality, the landlord accepts Welch into his house with great kindness and generosity. As time went on, they were sitting around the fire talking. They were talking about the capture of John Welch. 
And the host complained to his visitor on how difficult it was to catch and to capture this Welsh man. John Welch looked at him and said, Well, you know, I am, this is his words, I am sent to apprehend rebels. Now, this is John Welch talking. I am sent to apprehend rebels, and I know where Welch is going to preach tomorrow. You come, and I will put Welch's hand in your hand. Overjoyed, the landlord agreed to accompany his informant to the worship service the next morning. When Welch and the landlord <clears throat> arrived, the congregation had already assembled. Welch got up to preach. And you can imagine the look on the landlord's face. And he preached the gospel. And the landlord's heart was broken. And after the sermon, he came up to Welch. And he said, You told me that you were sent to apprehend rebels. And I, a rebellious sinner, have been apprehended this day. Typical of Covenanter surfaces. Well, these Covenanter preachers, these field preachers, were powerful men of God. They had three emphases in their sermons, as we've seen. The majesty of God, the loveliness of Christ, and the depravity of the human heart. And in all their services, in all their sermons, there was this worshipful adoration of their high and lifted up sovereign God. There was this constant praise for the greatness and glory and sufficiency of Christ. And this constant convicting of the hearer of the sin and the rebellion and the disobedience that was in his soul. Now, why were these field preachers hated so? What were they like and why were they hated? Well, first of all, because they were soldiers. These field preachers were soldiers, men who believed they were struggling for a momentous cause, and that cause is the crown rights of Jesus Christ. They weren't nationalists. They weren't fighting for nationalism. They weren't fighting out of patriotism. They weren't fighting like the English Puritans were fighting for civil liberties and freedom of conscience. These covenanters were fighting for the crown rights of Jesus Christ over his church to the exclusion of any other authority in his church. And they were uniquely committed to that. Secondly, these covenanting preachers were spiritual sons of John Knox and Andrew Melville of the late 1600s and the late 1500s and the early 1600s. Remember who Andrew Melville was. He was the Scottish Presbyterian who referred to James VI of Scotland, James I of England, that great perverted tyrant, as God's silly vassal. Silly meaning weak and impotent. And when he was before the king, here's what Andrew Melville said to King James. Now, I had to translate this into Southern because I can't, I'm not that good in old ancient Scottish. He said this 
to the king now, this Presbyterian preacher. Sir, as divers times before, so now again I must tell you, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ Jesus the king, and his kingdom is the kirk, the church, whose subject King James the sixth is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. And, sir, when you were in your swaddling clothes, Christ Jesus reigned freely in this land in spite of all his enemies. Well, you can see why the tyrant hated Andrew Melville. And these covenanting field preachers were the heirs of that great worldview and that great heritage of Knox and Melville and the Scottish Reformation. These covenanting preachers would gladly have laid down their lives for the Stuart kings. These weren't rebels. Had the Stuart kings been law-abiding, godly men, any one of these covenanting preachers would have laid down his life in defense of them if the Stuart kings had allowed them. But when the Stuarts pit their crowns and prerogatives against the crowns of Christ, crown of Christ, the Covenanters had to stand against the Stuarts and for and with Christ the King. And that's why they had to die. These preachers hungered to see their country, which was dear to them, bow before the feet of Christ. They believe that no matter what the cost, Jesus Christ is to be obeyed by the commonwealth and the state no less than by the church and the individual. And they believe that at its core, this covenant that they signed, that they would stand by and make sure that their nation would always be reformed, that this great covenant was simply a linking of the nation of Scotland to the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. These great field preachers were also spiritual caretakers of the temple of God, of the church of God. They fought for a momentous cause, but they also loved the church and they recognized the importance of the church. And so they, would, they weren't sectarian, they weren't cultic, they weren't bigoted men. They were preaching always on the spiritual unity of the church of God throughout the world and on the purity of the church and how important the church is in this world and how important it is to be pure and to be holy, and to be thoroughly reformed by the Word of God. Few people in our day value the church, the visible institutional church, as much as the Covenanters did. That's why they go out in the fields. They go out to have church, because they knew it wasn't enough just to have Bible studies and prayer meetings. But you had to have church. And they were willing to die go to church and to have a pure reformed church the covenanting preacher was also a teacher his great commitment was that his congregation understand all of the word of God in its breadth its depth and its length they were expositors of the Bible one of the favorite things these covenanting Presbyterian preachers loved to do was to move patiently and slowly through entire books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse. They didn't want to miss a thing. 
You can go to, go to old Scottish libraries today and find fat volumes in small print, six and seven volumes, just of one preacher's sermons on one of the four Gospels. But, of course, when the fires of persecution were the hottest, these sermons were not patient expositions of Scripture verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Rather, the preacher's word had to be as swift as lightning and as sharp as a sword. But the reason these Presbyterian men, women, and children survived so courageously in the face of the worst kind of brutality is because for decades prior to that, the kind of preaching they had was book by book. Chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse. Had they not had that background, they would not have been able to endure. And what was the doctrine these old covenanting preachers found in the Bible that motivated them, that held them up, that their, pre that their congregations loved to pre hear preach? It was the old doctrine of Calvinism and the Reformed faith that says that the high decree... The regal scepter, the majestic sovereignty of Lord, the Lord God Almighty, extend to everything that happens in the universe. The field preacher was a slave of Christ. He was overawed and smitten and consumed with reverence for the Son of God. He thought that Christ in His majesty and glory was matchless. And so he drew men to Christ picturing Christ and pre preaching Christ as majestic in holiness and of unparalleled perfection. But the old field preacher never forgot the beginning of a person's relationship with this sovereign, glorious Christ is at the cross. Field preachers were fishers of men filled with consuming eagerness to catch people with the gospel. These field preachers were always anxious to deepen the consecration of Presbyterians to the Lord Jesus Christ. As one man said, it was no slipshod godliness that he inculcated. He urged his hearers to rise to something better than the conventional religion of the crowds. He wanted Presbyterians to live better and more godly and more Christ-like. So these preachers were close in their scrutiny and then their analysis of the soul. They were vigorous in their rebuke of their congregations of the wrongs that existed. They were careful and considerate in spelling out their Christian duty. And they would constantly endeavor to rouse people out of spiritual sleep. But even more so, these covenanting preachers were consumed with the desire to lead lost and dying people to Jesus Christ. And so as a result, countless numbers of people became Christians at the risk of their lives through the preaching of these field preachers. But the field preachers themselves, their own lives, were their most persuasive and powerful sermons. As McCry has described them, their lives quickening and enlivening and prevailing illustrated and confirmed their words. It do does not matter where or how we meet them, robed in the crimson and purple grandeurs of the scaffold or within their homes and among their families, everywhere and always they followed those things which are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and good report. They lived as worthily as they knew how to die. They were godly men. But their religion, contrary to popular opinion, was not that anemic religion that has dominated Scottish and American Presbyterianism sense. Their spirituality was not ascetic, neoplatonic, stoic. 
And what is Neoplatonism? What's ascetic kind of religion? It's one that, that downplays the enjoyments and comforts of life. It's a religion that says that you should be sad all the time and just think about going to heaven and uh, worry about your soul and disregard your body and anything your body needs and to disassociate yourself from life in this world and in this culture. The Scottish Covenanters were not like that. These men were not godly men, and because they were godly men, the fires of their love for their wives and children were not dampened by their spirituality, but were fanned into warmer flames. The love they had for their households was strong, and they made no attempt to thwart or repress the showing of affection in their family. And these men were not gloomy men. Sometimes, even in the midst of hostility, they were men full of laughter. Their faith and doctrine were unyielding. Their worship services were simple and unornate, austere in the minds of others. But along with this unyieldedness and this simplicity, there was a warm brotherly love for each other and a rippling humor that made these people a model to us today. There's two men, two names in this, in this era that should be remembered by the Presbyterian Church with all, for all times because of the brutal and bloodthirsty way they treated the Covenanters. These are not men you should love, but men you should hate with a holy hatred, to use the words of Psalm 139. Of course, one name besides these two that we've already mentioned is Archbishop James Sharp. Archbishop James Sharp, the apostate Presbyterian and Covenanter who became a bloodthirsty killer of the Presbyterians. The other traitor was Sir George Mackenzie, Sir George Mackenzie of Rosehall, the king's representative, who the Covenanters looked to as a hero and as a protector. But once he was put in office, he became one of the cruelest and most unscrupulous persecutors of the Covenanters of that day. But the most evil of them all, a man whose name don't ever forget and teach your children this name, John Graham of Claverhouse. John Graham of Claverhouse. You have Archbishop James Sharp, Sir George Mackenzie, and John Graham of Claverhouse. Do you know that the very sound of this man's name in Scotland up to the last century sent a shudder through everybody who heard the name? A century after his death. He was still feared. He was given by the king unlimited legal power to kill, torture, destroy all Presbyterians if he thought it necessary, and he used that power generously. One Sunday morning, June the 1st, 1679, there was a large field meeting taking place at Loudon Hill. The people who were attending this Presbyterian worship service heard that Claverhouse was approaching with his soldiers and some Covenanter, two Covenanter prisoners that he had captured earlier. So the armed Presbyterian men went to face Claverhouse to rescue the two preachers. 
There were about 200 men on foot, Presbyterians, armed, 40 on horses. They met Claverhouse and his party at a place called Drumclog, D-R-U-M-C-L-O-G, one mile east of Loudon Hill. A skirmish resulted. Claverhouse's soldiers were attacked by the Covenanters with such fierceness that the king's soldiers fled the scene, leaving 40 dead behind. Claverhouse's horse was shot out from under him, and he barely escaped. But the king's soldiers that were captured as prisoners of war by the Covenanters were never mistreated and were soon released to go home without harm. By this time, Claver House was panic-stricken and full of rage. Some of the Covenanters were, to continue to, were determined to continue the fight against Claver House, who was killing their wives and daughters and children. So the Covenanters stationed themselves at Bothwell Bridge to await his approach. Three battles you need to remember. Three battles for the, for the freedom and the future of Presbyterianism and the Reformed faith fought by the Covenanters. The first, Pentland Hills. Remember we talked about it last week? And Robert uh, Louis Stevenson wrote some essays on it. Pentland Hills, where the Covenanters were slaughtered. The second place was Drumclog, where the Covenanters whipped John Graham of Claverhouse. The third place was Bothwell Bridge, where they fought bravely, but were easily overpowered by, Barth, by uh, Claverhouse's superior numbers. His army won an easy victory. By this time, Claverhouse was burning with revenge for the defeat at Drumclog, so he pursued the, the fleeing soldiers, who weren't soldiers, I mean, these were just men who were standing for the freedom of the Reformed faith. He, he chased down these fugitives, and more people were killed in flight than were killed on the battlefield. And 400 fell on the battlefield. 1,200 Presbyterians surrendered. And many of those who surrendered suffered worse, worse deaths on the scaffold than those who died in the field. A system of indiscriminate carnage took place after the flight. And everybody in the neighborhood whom the soldiers even suspected of being Presbyterians, whether they'd been at Bothwell Bridge or not, were shot. And killed. Scotland was now under martial law, and many who'd never been near a battlefield nor ever taken part in any armed rising were slaughtered in the fields, on public roads, in their places of business, in their homes, on the bare suspicion of being inclined to favor the Presbyterian cause. What happened to the two ministers that were rescued at Drumclog? Well, they were eventually caught again. Their last names were King and Kid. They were strangled to death. Their heads and arms were cut off. And they were affixed up for everyone to see. The fate of the rest of the prisoners, they took 1,200. The fate of the rest of the prisoners was deplorable. Now listen, I've been there to Greyfriars Churchyard. This is where they signed the covenant. You remember in their own blood several years before. Well, there's a prison. You can see it to this day. There's a prison. I can see it in my mind's eye. They took these 1,200 men, women, and children that were huddled together into Greyfriars Churchyard. Greyfriars is the name of a church. 
And the only lodging place they had was just out in the open, the cold earth. There was no covering to shelter them from Scottish winters. The, these 1,200 people were exposed to brutal insults and beatings by the soldiers who were supposed to guard them. And if any of these 1,200 Presbyterians attempted to lift a hand or was heard to change postures from this cramped position, they were shot without mercy. And these Presbyterians lived like this for five months. Some escaped. Others surrendered, promised they'd never take up arms against the king if they were set free. Many others died in prison. The 257 that survived out of 1,200. The 257 that survived were banished as slaves to Barbados in 1679. Diseased and starving without any warning, these 250 men and women were placed on a ship without any provisions. They were crammed into a place that couldn't hold a hundred people. Many suffocated for lack of air. The sailors treated them with cruel barbarity. The ship went through a storm and perished in the storm. The 250 Presbyterian prisoners might have escaped. But after the captain of the ship rescued his crew, he ordered the hatches where the Presbyterians lived to be locked. And only 40 or 50 survived. They who survived died in obscurity as slaves in Jamaica and New Jersey. It should be pointed out that it was not just the preachers and the men of the Reformed faith of Scotland that suffered horrible persecutions. Many women and children bravely endured torture and martyrdom for the crown rights of Christ and for Presbyterianism. No rank, no sex, and no age was exempt. The cruelty of this period was savage and worthy of cannibals. The whole government of England and Scotland, the Anglican Church of Scotland, had turned into one bloody, vast court of inquisition. And the Episcopal preachers and bishops played a central role. The infliction of death on these Presbyterians was too easy a punishment for these butchers. So before they died, they would insult these farmers and women, these common people in the court. And as they stood to wait to die, their turn on the scaffold, they'd be beaten. Not even young children escape their bloodthirstiness. Let me read you the story of one 10-year-old boy. Now, bear in mind, he's a 10-year-old boy. When the people of the house saw the enemy coming to their house, they fled out the other way, but the cruel enemy got my dear little brother into their hands. This is a survivor writing about his 10-year-old brother. They examined him concerning the persecuted people where they haunted, but he would not open his mouth to speak one word to them. They flattered him. They offered him money to tell where these Presbyterians were, but he wouldn't speak. They held the point of a drawn sword to his naked 10-year-old breast. They fired a pistol over his head, 10-year-old boy. 
They set him on horseback behind one of themselves to be taken away and hanged. They tied a cloth on his face and set him on his knees to be shot to death. They beat him with their swords and with their fists. They kicked him several times to the ground with their feet. Yet after they had used all the cruelty they could, he wouldn't open his mouth. Although he was a comely, proper child, going in ten years of age, yet they called him a vile, ugly, dumb devil and beat him very sore and then went on their way, leaving him lying on the ground, sore and bleeding in the open fields. You reckon our ten-year-olds could die like that? Women. Nothing makes the, ch- the state of that day and the Anglican church of that day more despicable than the way they treated godly Presbyterian women, young and old. Let me tell you about two of them real quickly. Elizabeth Allison and Marion Harvey. These were common Scottish women. They weren't well educated. They were peasant women. They were both charged with a terrible crime. And that is, they had attended Presbyterian worship services in the fields. They were brought before the court, Isabel Allison and Marion Harvey, were brought before the court, they'd never been before such high and lofty people in their lives, where they were intimidated and ridiculed and harassed. And both of these women condemned to be hanged on January the 26th, 1681. As they were going out to the place of execution, Bishop Patterson, an English preacher, uh, Bishop Patterson came to them in their prison while they were having their last private worship service with God. And he said to them, Marion, you said you would never hear an Anglican bishop preach and pray. Now you shall be forced to hear one before you die. At which point he ordered another one of the Anglican bishops to pray. He no sooner started praying than Isabel and Marion started singing the 23rd Psalm. They weren't about to hear the prayers of Anglicans. They sang so loudly that they drowned out the voice of the bishop. So they were taken to be executed with five immoral women who were found guilty of murdering their children. But as they stood there, they were not moved. As they stood on the scaffold, these two peasant women, Presbyterians, sang psalms and prayed. And as one witness said, died with much composure and joy. Marion said in death, Behold, I hear my beloved saying to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. I have not come here for murder. I'm about 20 years old. At 14 or 15, I was a hearer of the bishops, and I indulged. And then I was a blasphemer and a Sabbath breaker. And a chapter of the Bible was a burden to me. But since I heard this persecuted gospel, I dare not blaspheme nor break the Sabbath. And the Bible became my delight. Upon this, the army major called the executioner. 
and he choked her to death. Men and women and children of whom the world was not worthy, who went through the fires, but the Lord was by their side. Let us pray. Once again, we thank you, Father, for this great cloud of witnesses that is such a conviction to our anemic state and such an encouragement to us as we seek to serve you in these ever-increasingly treacherous times. For Christ's sake, amen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.